One of the things I love doing is going back to old notes about people. I don't have everything, but I do have a lot. When I first met Jonathan Levine, who is now CIO and founder of Bain Capital Credit, it was called Sanctity Advisors at the time, we met at a coffee shop near Union Square. I don't think he liked me. I was a little late. He was testing me on my knowledge of credit markets, the wheels turning as to whether I was worth investing any time in, and whether he wanted to talk to a reporter at all. I must have passed the test because Jonathan sat down for a video a few years later. I was filming for II's War Stories series, where I talked to people who shaped the industry. It was II's 50th anniversary. We got to know each other over Battleship. Not sure who won, but at the time, Jonathan rattled off all the crises he worked through. The Russia default, 9-11, WorldCom, Enron, General Motors getting downgraded, Lehman Brothers. Okay, I'll stop. No one better to talk to about a crisis than a credit guy, who, in Jonathan's words, thinks it's always raining. This time, Jonathan and I got to talk for more than just a few minutes. No games, but some of my favorite parts are our discussion about his work with Ken Burns, the filmmaker. Of course, nothing to do with credit, but there is a lot of overlap. And I love talking about the roots of private credit in the transformation of Wall Street after 2008. His insights into the markets right now how the environment is similar to what he's been through in the past and how it's different. And stay tuned for what he thinks his superpower is. You know, I, I do want to start with, with your own story. I don't think too many people wake up and say, I want to do private credit. But I think it's really interesting. I'd love to hear your story and how you see your story. Coming out of college, I had a political science degree and an English literature concentration, so the equivalent of a, of a minor. <laughs> and so I obviously was destined for law school. Ah, I was admitted I to law school. I remember going to the orientation. Columbia had a thing if you were going from Columbia undergrad to uh, Columbia Law School. There was like some sort of they told you early and you could go visit in like February or something like that. And I was going to go to law school. And then one of my friends said, you know, these investment banks are starting these uh, analyst programs and you should go talk to them. They're just looking for smart people. And I said, they're looking for people like me who took one economics and no math in college. And they said, yeah. And I was like, I can't believe that's right. I'm probably a better fit to, to go to law school. And then she said to me, well, they have free food. And I'm like, Definitely, as a senior in college, I would go for free food. Do you know how many careers have been launched By on the back food. of free food? Yes, that makes Absolutely. sense. <laughs> I went. Uh, I said, well, this is interesting. They kept saying they're just looking for good athletes was the line they would use. You don't have to have specific business undergrad, which Columbia didn't have anyway. And I interviewed at a few places and uh, got a bunch of offers and wound up at Drexel. And I said to myself, look. If somebody's willing to pay me $35,000 knowing nothing, I'll save it up and I'll be able to go pay for law school. And then two years in, almost two years into Drexel, I'll never forget, the guy next to me said, you should consider business school. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not so sure. And I applied to HBS and got in. And Drexel went out of business literally three weeks after I got in. So oh I'm like, God, good timing. I guess I'm going to go to business school, <laughs> you know, and I, because I, I had decided I was really interested by the work at Drexel. I love the creativity. It's funny, if I became a lawyer, I imagined becoming a litigator. So it was funny because it's not like I thought I was going to be a business lawyer. I went to HBS, met my wife the third day. 
Again, good timing. (laughs) Very good timing. Best thing that ever happened to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. I worked at McKinsey in Boston during my summer and part-time during my second year. Went there after I graduated. And then in March of 1993, I got a call from this little um, private investment firm that was raising its first institutional fund. And they were looking for somebody who had banking and consulting experience. They had, I don't know, like 15-ish investment or post-business school investment professionals. I went and interviewed on a Friday, came back on Monday, and Mitt Romney made me a job offer. (laughs) And I said, this feels good. Yeah. Totally, it just felt right. Just like going to Drexel felt right, going to business school felt right. It's so funny how many young people I interview for analyst jobs and stuff who are, you know, sit there and they tell you, I've been picking stocks since the sixth grade and here's my, you know, long-term performance in high school. And and I was like, you know, I was handing out free lunches as my summer job in in high school and I worked in a warehouse in college. So I, uh, it was a different, it's a different time. And lo and behold, um, 30 years later, I'm at Bain Capital. Going to law school wouldn't have been such an odd thing. No. I mean, a lot of your peers went to law school and, yes. and uh, say it helps them kind of through, you know, understanding corporate structure and bankruptcy, et cetera. So that could have worked. Yes, absolutely. As I said, I had this weird, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I probably, if I had gone to law school, would have gone back to Providence, where I grew up, and done public interest law. That's sort mm-hmm. of how I imagined my career going that way. And, you know, it, everything is just, you know, there, there's a lot of happenstance in life. I actually think I showed a flexibility and a, a, an ability to react to new data as it becomes available mm-hmm. that is really important in investing. I use a framework with the team a lot called the OODA loop, which comes from military strategy and how they teach, how they used to teach fighter pilots to orient during um, air-to-air combat. And OODA stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And basically, it's trying to teach you that don't just react the minute something happens. Mm. You know, first, responding is always better than reacting. And two, assess the data, make your decision, and then act on it. But it's a loop. Do it over and over and over again. So at each point in my career, I assessed what is it I think I want to do? What is it I'm good at? Uh I do think that people have a tendency not to ask that question. It sometimes is, what do I think I might be good at? Or what do I wish I was good at? And if I went down that route, I would have tried to go on the PGA tour, but I'm not good <laughs> enough to do that. <laughs> it's you're so, self-aware. <laughs> so, so you have to assess what you're good at. Well, that is really interesting. I mean, obviously, that's also the benefit of, of hindsight. And I think you know, that's one of the things that I also want to talk to you about, how you see your story differently, right? Like Drexel, I mean, it's it's a myth in, in a positive sense, right? Like what Drexel is. And even when I hear you talking about your career choices, there's also a lot of like gut instinct in there. The OODA loop is, is not that, right? It's, um, so it's, it's kind of a combination. I think that in everything, there's art and feel, and yeah. as well as, in, in business, 
I always tell the team that you're never going to be able to have 100% of the information. Right. And part of the success in life is making great judgments or good judgments with 80% of the data. And then you have to fill in. Now, obviously, you always want to collect as much data as you possibly can, but you must recognize the limitations of you're never going to get 100. There's always one more thing you can do, one right. more day. I think that a little bit in investing today, people have lost sight of, can you explain the thesis with three pieces of paper and simple calculations as compared to massive longitudinal data and everything that's available and open source and credit card data and customer information. And you should do all of that, obviously. But you have to start with the premise, what I'm doing. Does it make sense? Mm. Because the analytical firepower that is out there now on Wall Street in the investment community could almost prove anything if the person set out to decide this is what I want to prove. Right, right. And the biggest question you can ask yourself is, does this make sense to me? And at right. some point, that's where the gut feel comes in. If it doesn't make sense, it's okay to say no. Right. Because good investors will have a much higher false negative than false positive. <laughs> right, right. And so that's, that's always what I strive for. So, yes... It was the decision to go to Drexel, the decision to leave big established McKinsey and go to Bain Capital uh -huh. may seem counterintuitive, but they're still reasonably well-informed. And you know, even though Bain Capital was a very small place at the time, what risk was I really taking? I could go back to McKinsey right. or another consulting firm. Like, I was, young, I was 26 years old. I could figure something out. Right. So right. I don't view it as like, oh, I was the boldest, most entrepreneurial, took a risky, you know, decision. I did take some risk, but it was calculated risk. Yeah, so interesting. So in two minutes or less, talk about the influence of Drexel. Because again, it's like a lot of your peers started there. But like, it seems you could rethink that all the time, like just like what it meant. I think Drexel had an entrepreneurial spirit. I think that there was a team ethos that carries through today. And I think people miss the fact that Drexel was relatively small. I knew the name of every single person in my analyst class. I could be wrong. There were something like eight analysts in my class in M&A, and there might have been 20 in corporate finance or 23 or something. Mm -hmm. And it was just I can picture the floor I sat on and sort of think about who sat in each in <laughs> right. each cubicle and, and what their story was versus some of the other firms I got offers at, which were huge C's and C's and C's of mm. they're just enormous firm. And it was interesting. I did say at the time that if I thought I was going to make a career in banking or finance, I probably wouldn't have gone to Drexel. I would have gone to one of the more established firms. Right, right. Yeah. And the yeah. irony is I did make a yeah. career in finance. <laughs> you did. You did. But being small, like you got involved in a lot of things. A lot like of things. Like start to finish. You weren't just taking this, you know, right. this piece of it. So I guess that 
is really an advantage looking yes. back. Yeah. So switching gears, I mean, talk about your support of, of Ken Burns, the very famous uh, filmmaker. How'd you meet him? Ken makes his films. People don't realize that he starts working on them a decade in advance. So about seven to ten years before he came out with his Vietnam film, he recognized how controversial the topic is. And he wanted to make sure that he had early bipartisan support, identifiable Democrats, identifiable Republicans supporting this because he always wants to make sure that his films are not perceived as partisan. Okay. or as political. But this one in particular. This one in particular because of the topic. Right. And he had a prominent Republican already who had agreed to do it. We had a friend in common who said, the Levines love history. They believe the work you do is really important. I had coincidentally talked to Jeannie. My wife Jeannie and I had both talked to this friend about how much we enjoyed Ken's work. And uh, he came to see me and described a vision of what he was trying to accomplish, and more broadly, his philosophy around his, his films and the stories he tells. Mm -hmm. And he will always talk to you in a way he, he tells stories. Right. He it doesn't is. drive you to a conclusion. He doesn't take a point of view. But he tells complete, thorough, and well-researched stories from multiple perspectives. It just resonated with us. And as we got to know him better and study his, his work more, documentaries by Ken Burns shown on PBS still have an incredibly high trust factor. In a time when news doesn't have a high trust factor, cable doesn't, we agreed to support him and became great friends, and we've supported a number of his, his work since. He raises money, and obviously public television is a not-for-profit, and he right. himself has a not-for-profit called the Better Angels Society, which supports his films in up-and-coming documentary filmmakers. And we've just become very close and had the, the honor and privilege of working with him on and supporting a number of his, of his work since. The most interesting thing when I was watching the Vietnam series is, to my memory, it was the first documentarian historian who actually interviewed North Vietnamese soldiers, mm -hmm. right? We had yeah. all learned the story of Vietnam from one perspective. Right. And it wasn't a function of who was right and who was wrong. It was just there were two sets of people fighting that war domestically in, in Vietnam. Right. And I just thought it was fascinating hearing their stories as well and how different their perspective was. Okay, so obviously I, I, I don't know Ken Burns, but for me, when I've watched you know, some of his films, they've really completely changed everything I thought before, like the Civil War. And they're just so influential, right? I mean, how has he changed your perspective, you know, on your work, personally, you know, in all ways? When I think about what I've learned from Ken in his films, first, he does not go into a film with a preconceived notion. He wants to study, tell the story, but he does not say, I want to tell the story that X was right, Y was wrong, and Z was completely a different way. He researches them incredibly thoroughly, buries himself in the Library of Congress on some of the American history films, and 
there's always a second story that he's way more nuanced than one might expect going into things, whether it was talking to North Vietnamese soldiers on the Vietnam War and having a different perspective, whether it was on the Holocaust. He starts with the story of Anne Frank and the fact that she had applied to get in as a refugee. The application her father, you know, her family had had applied and she wasn't allowed in because it just never got processed for years. That makes one think not just about the Holocaust, but about refugee crises mm -hmm. all over the world and what is America's role. And he doesn't have a black and white answer there. He points out that America took in more refugees than any place else, but could have taken in a lot more. A lot more. And how do you think about that? As, as a country. He neither buys into the Roosevelt should have done more and bombed the tracks and all that, nor Roosevelt couldn't have done anything else. You know, he actually thinks it's less about war strategy and more about should there have been more refugees even accepted even before the war. And each story, there's clearly a civil rights um, undertone um, or le series of lessons to the baseball documentary. I just think that he has a nuance to him that I think we'd all be well served to pay more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think going into something unbiased, not knowing where it's going to lead, doing a ton of research. So when I heard you interview him for Bain Employees as part of, I guess, a ser an educational series that you did, there were so many things that stood out for me that I felt like, God, Jonathan takes that thread and applies it to, you know, his work, maybe his management style, right? Like just, you know, truth, storytelling, uh, the unbiased nature of it, going into something with one opinion and coming out with the other. I mean, I'm sure you think a lot of things when you first hear about an investment and, mm -hmm. and then once you go through it, it's very different. So it's hard not to hear those things, you know, as I was listening. And if you ever wanted to take a pay cut, you could be a journalist, you know. Oh, that's very <laughs> kind of you. I do think that people in the investment world are always well served trying to gather lessons outside the traditional world of finance and business and investing and reading more than business publications and doing more than watching, you know, business news. Obviously, that's important. You have to know what's going on in your, in, in your industry. But finding the time to learn different ways and look at different models. I, long before I met Ken, would watch his documentaries on long flights. They're perfect for flights. They're broken up. <laughs> if you're watching a movie on a flight and you fall asleep, you got to figure out where you were. It's easier to go back in a documentary. It may sound trite, but you hear so much these days about lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And that is a way of lifelong learning. And you, you are right that everything that we talked about in that interview is true and is part of who I think I am and what we try to accomplish at our firm and there was no script for that interview. That was all natural, organic, the way he and I talk to each other. I think he enjoys those conversations because for him, I come from a very different world. And I just think that there's a thought approach 
of fact-based curiosity that is important. And I think we all need to be curious. Yeah, and it seems like that's a real contribution. I mean, I know he started it long before, you know, our current environment, politically, economically, but there was a lot that uh, was said. And he is an amazing storyteller. I joke with him. I mean, he made the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> seem fascinating, building the bridge. And by the way, I am a passionate defender of how fascinating that film is, which is his first film he made a long time ago. But I had to have seen other Ken Burns films before I went back and watched that one. Right. So let's talk. This is not your first market crisis. I don't think it's my fifth. <laughs> you don't think it's your fifth? <laughs> I know. No, I right. think that that is absolutely true. So talk about where we are now and what feels similar to one of those five or six crises before and what feels very different. What I think feels the same is people take fragments of news and extrapolate pieces of data into information, and that's where panic comes from. That's where price volatility comes from. And fear just overwhelms. And when fear overwhelms, I don't know how many good decisions you've ever made when you're fearful. Yeah. It's so... Um, and it's, so that comes together um, in a way that contributes to volatility and uncertainty in the markets. What's a little different this time is for a while, because of the way inflation came on, people have had this impending sense of something bad is going to happen. But interestingly enough, everybody's got a different what. What the bad thing is, it's going to be inflation. It's going to be a recession. It's going to be real estate. It's, no, some of these are correlated, obviously. It's, it's going to be international trade. It's going to be geopolitical. It's so in other crises, most recently in 08, everybody sort of knew what the what was. The what was mortgages, particularly subprime mortgages, seem like that could be a big problem. And when the banks hung bridges, got up to $250, $350 billion, people knew that could be a problem. It was the when that people couldn't put their finger on. And there's a lot of people, as you know, who lost money shorting subprime mortgages because they had the what right, but they didn't have the when. Right. That was very. This time around, there's a lot of ambiguity as to the what. And the question is, do we think, how many times has there ever been a bad thing that was predicted to happen that was either as bad as it was predicted to be or happened in the way that people imagined? And I will tell you, I can think of, you know, one of my superpowers is I can think of the downside of lots of things. <laughs> You're a credit guy. <laughs> I, I didn't have bank failure on my bingo card early in the year. Like, I don't think a lot of people had relatively good, well-perceived banks were going to fail. The what was completely different, but the market seemed to have managed that. I think, could the way they worked out have been smoother and faster and sure? But at the end of the day, as we're sitting here today, the system worked. 
The system worked. Right. Equity was wiped out. Depositors were protected. And stronger banks that could take on these institutions did. Right. Did you not think banks, because you thought in the aftermath of 08, that problem had been solved? Neither of these banks that got in trouble got in trouble because they made bad loans. Right. That is usually what gets a bank in trouble. This was a very odd asset liability mismatch exacerbated by a ton of deposits coming out. Mm -hmm. And depository institutions always have an inherent weakness in they have they give you overnight funds, but they do make loans and buy government bonds and things like that. And therefore, it was how the mismatch got exacerbated. I just don't think people would have expected these institutions to go under because of their government bond holdings. Right. And because the at least the first one was, you know, the sort of how people were feeling about it got spread on social media. Right. And a bank so the, from your couch, right? R- right. So the information just went so fast. And I think that that's new. None of us had ever seen that before. Then, you know, it is crowdsourcing, right? And then people said, well, what bank looks like this one? Or what other banks are there in San Francisco? And you wouldn't have thought that having a 415 area code was a consideration. So I think that it's not ideal. I do think that we need to watch out for commercial real estate lending. I don't think it's monolithic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that there'll be a difference between losses and catastrophic losses. I think there'll be different amounts at institutions. But I actually think institutions will see that coming. Well, you said earlier, right, like that you didn't know when, like in 08, you didn't know exactly when subprime, when it would all unfold. I think there's a, a big question about when right now as well, right? right? I mean, you know, the markets, uh, you know, have come back to a certain extent, and a lot of people are still looking for that other proverbial shoe. Agree. And I think there is concern in commercial real estate, but the debt ceiling, the election, a trade war, like there's other what's that nobody, there is not an agreed upon set of what yet. And that could be a positive or a negative, because it is unlikely they would all happen. It is even less likely they would all happen at the same time. I think that if people start talking about it earlier, maybe people be a little more conservative and not compound the problem. I think the use of leverage in the system broadly is lower now than all the total rate of return swaps and off-balance sheet stuff that you saw in, in 08. But now is a time as a credit person where... It is a selection market where Mm. it's not just this industry will be a good industry and that industry will be a bad industry. It will be more that individual credits within individual industries will have different characteristics. Do they need access to capital in the future? Do they have interest rate hedges? And if so, when do they roll off? Right. Do they have buildings with leases that expire eight years from now? four years from now, or tomorrow. I'm slightly exaggerating. Right. I just think that there's a lot more nuanced things that could happen. And then for the first time in, you know, 15 years, maybe, the coupon matters. Mm -hmm. That as an owner of credit, the coupon 
helps protect you because the more coupons you get, you've sort of insulated your basis. Right. It's so, you know, I think it'll be an interesting time. I think obviously there'll be volatility, but I think it will be different than wide scale. Everything goes wrong. The government steps in and fixes it. Then everything goes right again. Right. And that is true of 08. That is true of COVID. And we talked earlier about, you know, hindsight and everybody can decide in hindsight. I'm a big believer in thinking about not in hindsight, but did you have the best available information at the time? A lot of the economic and financial decisions that were made around aid uh, during COVID and printing money and mm -hmm. all that, mm -hmm. nobody knows what the counterfactual would have been. Right. So we have to live with the decisions that have been made and once again, think about, okay, based on what we know now, what decisions and actions should we make rather than sit there and debate whether or not some banking regulations got pulled back in 2019, whether or not we shouldn't have done the last COVID assistance. We That's did. for the future. We did. Yeah. And yeah. it's for historians to figure out. And next time, God forbid, we face something like this. But we got to work on what we have now. Right. Well, so dig into the opportunities a little bit more. I mean, commercial real estate, right? Take me out, zoom out a little bit, and talk about the changes even in office, right, post-COVID, you know, and how that is affecting investors and what's to come. Because I think it's very well known that private credit, the whole industry kind of developed post-financial crisis as the banks, you know, drew in their uh, risk-taking. But... On the commercial real estate, not as much. So talk a little bit about that. Sure, and I want to step out a little bit, zoom out even more. We've been doing private credit for 25 years. It got very big after 08. Secondly, these markets are global now. So what we're doing in India is very different than what we're doing in London, is very different than what we're doing in major cities in the United States is very different than what we're doing in secondary cities in the United States. Those are all different markets. Right. And they have different needs. What I think we're going to see is that the whole just on office, back to work concept, I mm -hmm. do think there's a very New York view that permeates, that has nothing to do with how London and Mumbai, you know, and Athens are thinking about these yeah, things. Um, or Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> so I think that you need to be very micro in your markets and understand who is using the buildings, why they are using the buildings, and what the alternatives are. Mm -hmm. Second of all, one of the reasons that you haven't seen private credit in hard assets, particularly real estate, is because they had just alternative, much cheaper forms of capital. That does not exist now. And by the way, if smaller banks are going to be a little bit less likely to lend long, and they're going to have slightly larger cash buffers, you're going to see an even greater need. So much like the way the corporate market developed, that over time, commercial banks would only go so deep in the capital structure, and then many got into only the moving business and not the storage business. I think you're going to see there's no reason why the same thing wouldn't develop in real estate. And I think time has proven that private lenders can be more customized, can be more patient, mm -hmm. and can be value-add in a way that traditional lenders can't be or haven't chosen to be. And therefore, 
we can partner on logistics developments in Mumbai or in office to residence development in London or a office park in the United States outside of a major urban center and be a different kind of partner than just lending in some formulaic way against the asset. You know, initially it seemed that there were a lot of people pitching kind of private credit, like you're getting 0% in liquid credit. That was a big part of the value proposition, or at least, you know, the simple one-line value proposition. But it's not that at all. It's a whole different animal, right? It is. A huge percentage of our private loans have covenants. The market doesn't have covenants. We are designing the securities that we're lending. So they're not going to be perfect, but at least we have the choice Mm -hmm. of we've made conscious decisions. We didn't make a decision, is this something I want to buy or not? We were able to mold it and structure it. Private credit, you usually get more information and a little more time to do diligence. Mm -hmm. So I just think that It was always overly simplistic to say that it's a premium to the public markets because it's still a premium to the public markets because private credit is floating just like bank loans are floating. So so the base rate has gone up. So the base rate for private credit has gone up too. Right. The transformation of Wall Street after the financial crisis, and you've touched on on this a couple of times. I know you hate the word shadow banking. This seems like it might be the first real test of that. But talk about that a little bit, because I feel like five years after the crisis, you might have had a different perspective on the transformation. And now it's 15 years, which is hard to believe. But tell me a little bit about that and how your view of it has changed. Sure. And the reason I don't like the expression shadow banking is if I asked you to list the private lenders, my guess is off the tap of your head, you could list the top 10 or 15 private lenders. They're not in the shadows. They're not in the shadows, yeah. (laughs) Right? True. It's press releases get issued, companies issue statements. There's nothing shadow about it. What it is, is it's customized. It's customized lending. It's not this monolithic, we always do the same thing over and over. And by the way, stylistically, the way we at Bain Capital do it is very different than a number of our competitors. Some people do bigger deals, some people do smaller deals, some people edge towards one industry. So what I would say is the biggest change is the array of capital solutions from traditional private credit to structured equity solutions to even junior MES, which is back, which wasn't back for a while, to high-yield bonds, to multi-currency facilities, to regular way bank loans. Just the number of securities, the, the toolbox is so much bigger and so much better tested mm-hmm. than it was before. And I think that different firms have developed different characteristics that some investments that come in and we'll look at and say, this isn't in our strike zone, this should go to X, Y, or Z firm. And lo and behold, we'll read that X, Y, or Z firm did it. Whereas there's other ones where we'll say, this is what we do. This is our sweet spot. And therefore, we think that we are better equipped to analyze it, structure it, and work with the company. So if I were to say it's any one thing, it's the toolbox. And two, I think that borrowers are much more comfortable now with the whole private lending world 
because I think it's proven itself not to be trigger happy, mm-hmm. not to be loan to own, not to be any of the things that you might have associated with any sort of customized lending 20 years ago. I think that's really important. I think it's really needed right now. You brought up that these types of lenders came into play after the crisis. Just remember, it is folks like us and like other firms that do private credit that step in and deploy capital exactly at the time when others are pulling out. Right, which is not what the banks might do. Right. It's so if people think that regional banks are going to be less likely to lend money over the next two years, you would hope that folks like us are figuring out how to step in and work maybe with some of those institutions. You know, they could help us source things. We have, over history, had regional banks come to us and say, hey, we're going to do the revolver. We need somebody to do the term loan or somebody to do term and mes. I would hope and expect that we'll see more of that over the next couple of years. Right. You're part of an ecosystem. And you want to be better than your competitors, of course, but you want your your competitors to also be doing good work, right? What worries you about, you know, the private credit industry in general? You are right. I don't think this is like sports competition where it's a zero-sum, I have to win, and you get eliminated in game seven. It goes back to a point I make over and over. Know who you are. Don't try to accomplish something with leverage that you couldn't accomplish without leverage. That doesn't mean we don't use leverage, but every time we use leverage, we use it in a way that says, okay, if we had to pay down that leverage, do we have the funds to do it? And would we still be happy with what we're left with? We'd be less happy with it. You know, I I do think, and this happens in any cycle, in every single firm, everybody I'm sure has made some stretch loans, maybe a little too much Holdco, maybe too many loans that had an equity takeout as a solution. And I think it will be both interesting and important for the industry to see how those are worked out. I think relative to traditional sources of capital, a lot of those may just take equity, which a bank can't do and a CLO can't do. Right. It's so I think that the array of solutions will be higher, but it is those things. It's the all things to all people, not completely thinking through leverage and how many stretch deals did you do late cycle. You know this world. I mean, obviously, private credit, but even beyond that, I mean, finance, you know it so well, right? It's the 25th anniversary of the firm itself. and Of Bain Capital Credit, yes. Right, right. Bain Capital's been around a little longer, but yes. Right, right. So you know this world really well. What could be done better, either structurally or, you know, how people outside of finance you know, view the industry, you know, what could be done better on the institutional level? I wish there were better dialogues and not necessarily playing out on television about Mm. what private credit is, solutions that we may see as an industry that could help, like lending markets, expansion of lending in a prudent way is good for economies. Right. That goes back to Genesis, right? right? I mean... And free, transparent, liquid, fair markets are needed for that to happen. And therefore, if there were better dialogues about 
how it is that private lenders seek to accomplish that. And even more broadly, the bank loan market and the bond markets seek to accomplish that. It is not a zero-sum game. Nobody wants to see bad things happen to the economy, bad things happen to companies. And I actually think markets work best when there are where the, when there is transparency and everybody agrees what the rules are. I hope that that is, as the markets mature, that's where, in a thoughtful way, that those conversations can happen. And that's true of all private assets, whether it's private equity, venture. I do believe that these are good things for the economy. I believe that there will always be bad stories and good stories. There will be way more good stories than bad stories. Okay. Even as a financial journalist for so long, I'm fascinated by this world, right? Like the weeds of it and and trying to make it interesting to people who might not be in the day-to-day, even in finance, right? A lot of people don't completely understand what private credit is. And so trying to bring that alive. So when you think about your own career and the deals you've worked on, is there a story that you could tell in that way, right? Bringing something where it could be about coupon, it could be about spread. But, you know, when you really dig into it, it's it's really fascinating. When I started in this uh, industry in the late 80s, you know, we were raising money for these little companies with big ideas like Turner Broadcasting, which became CNN. It was like the W. TBS Superstation in Atlanta or something like that. (laughs) Um, CNN had started in 1980, but was not what it is today. Hasbro Toys, the last pitch I worked on before I went to business school was going to a mid-sized regional cable operator and pitching them on buying a studio and a network and how you could combine those things. 30 years later, they all did. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and even today, when I wear a Canada Goose vest and walk by a Pizza Express in London or I get a coffee at Gales or fly on Virgin Australia, I know that all of those things are companies that accessed private capital when public capital wasn't available to them. Mm-hmm. And we made a loan to the Harlem Globetrotters during a recession. Tell me about that. They're a really good entertainment business that, you know, has a particular niche market and they couldn't get any traditional capital. And this was probably 15 years ago, you know, understanding what it is. It's not like loaning to a traditional sports team, but we've also loaned to traditional sports teams before access to capital for sports teams became super dynamic. Even today, our private capital special situations business has morphed from what people would traditionally view more as distressed to customized capital. Mm. So it's been in the press. We have done an investment with Intel Mm -hmm. and CI Financial in Canada, two enormous companies. They're not troubled companies. They're not, but they wanted very specific bespoke capital. And that is, I think, the next era of private capital is that there are just companies in the world that want to get bespoke capital in a form that works for them, that checks all the boxes of what they're looking for, Mm -hmm. and they're willing to pay a little extra for it in return for flexibility. And I think, I mean, you can hear I sound pretty excited about it because back in 1988, I couldn't have imagined, back in 
2008, I couldn't have imagined ever doing an investment with Intel or an investment-grade company in Korea or an airline. So if Ken Burns ever makes the story um, or a film about finance, what will he find? I would not speak for Ken, (laughs) but (laughs) I would say that what we were talking about before that the story is always more complicated than the knee-jerk, whatever your oversimplification is. It's always great. It's always bad. It's always one-sided. It's never, you know, one-sided. And I think that he would tell stories of companies that might not be around were it not for some private lender somewhere or some private equity firm. When I started out on Wall Street and high-yield bonds were called junk bonds, people used to point to Turner Broadcasting, CNN, you know, which was one of the early companies, you know, Ted Turner accessed the high-yield bond market. Right. And that was probably a pretty good thing for how we get information, putting opinions about misinformation inside right. <laughs> um, the growth of, of an entire new, new world. As I always say about the investment markets, nothing is as good as it looks or as bad as it feels. Great place to end. Well, well thank you so much. Me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Julie Siegel. A Conversation with Julie Siegel is produced by Deanna Chapman. And always check out institutionalinvestor.com for more.